Are you Invictus? Clint, are you Invictus? Are you Invictus? What does it mean? You know, when I started the Invictus My Podcast, uh, you know, my goal was to unite a bunch of people who had a similar ideology or uh, similar characteristic traits. Invictus means unconquerable. So it's an, an old uh, Greek word for it means unconquerable. Unconquerable. It, honestly, just be totally honest, it was, a, it was a new concept to me. I had to Google it when you sent it to me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do my best. Tell me about what the show, what, what, is, what is your audience looking for? Tell me. This is your first time here. This is the number one program dedicated to helping individuals maximize their potential and truly become unconquerable. Here we have discussions about what it takes and what it means to experience and magnify political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. Yes, I would absolutely say that. I'm going to keep getting up, right? And I keep getting up and I keep pushing forward. And that's the type of mindset that you need to have. I, I never lose hope. I never lose faith. My mindset has always been, if I want something, I don't give up. So let me tell you what is the number one issue when it, when it comes to being unconquerable. Okay. And the number one word you have to think about here is not intelligence, not savvy, not strength, none of those things. The number one thing is resilience. You know I'm Invictus, come on. All right, I'm Invictus AF. Well, may I have an initiation question for my tribe? Okay. Are you Invictus? I believe I am. So yes, I agree. I am Invictus. I totally agree, man. And and I think that if there's anybody on this planet that's unconquerable, it's probably me. I am not the type to take orders, and I am definitely in a position that uh, I can I can stand up for myself right now. So. And I was like, no way! I know what that word means now. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. Very cool concept for a show. You didn't ask me if I was Invictus. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Invictus Mind podcast, the number one show regarding how to realize and maximize your political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. My name is Mike Corbell, and I thank you for listening today. Just a reminder, if you like this show, please subscribe to your favorite channel, as this podcast is on all the podcast players as well as on YouTube. I do appreciate all the kind words you would like to leave me as a review also, just so I know how I'm doing and what your favorite topics are and where I can make improvements. All right, on the program with me today is a woman who reached out to me because she felt her story would be great for my audience. And after learning what she is all about, I agree that uh, I think we have a good match here. I first wanted to make a little plug for the website that we did connect on. It's a great tool for up-and-coming podcasters as well as those who are looking to find guests or if you have a great story to share, you can reach out to podcasters like me and, uh, and get hosted. It is podmatch.com. It's a great site where you can actually create a profile for yourself, and they categorize you by keywords and topics, and you can see some of the other work that people have done. So uh, I will leave a link at the bottom description of this podcast, and uh, if you want to check out this podmatch.com. All right. So like I said, this person reached out to me and I'll give a brief introduction to her and let her tell her story. She is a tenured professor uh, with uh, formerly Drew University and Montclair State University. Mm-hmm. She uh, was interesting. She was an uh, intern at NASA, the Goddard Space Flight Center. And she is a business owner with a website called The Joy of Coding. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what it means to be a coder in today's age of uh, technology shifting. I'd like to welcome Dr. Emily Hill. How are you doing today, Emily? Good. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. 
Great. Well, thank you. So when we connected on Podmatch, you told me that you were really interested in my show and that word sovereignty stuck out to you. Yeah. Well, I, cause I, 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 so I'm a technologist, so I'm in the science realm, but I'm also an artist and a spiritual philosopher seeker. And so that was what really, that was the part of me that tugged was sovereignty and, and being able to kind of be in my own space and not be so affected by everyone around me. I'm such a people pleaser. I've created this habit of just serving everyone around me to my own detriment. And so that word sovereignty really of personal sovereignty really stood out to me because that's where I am on my journey. I'm trying to learn how to do that. You know, that I can take steps forward and put my needs as well as balancing other people's needs around me. Well, that's perfect. Well, let me introduce myself to you. My audience, of course, is, knows all, yeah. what I'm all about. But as I mentioned, uh, this show, we discuss uh, political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. So uh, at any given time, if you're a listener to the show, you can find information about uh, political activism and ideologies. So I, I talk to all matters of uh, political thinkers, uh, although I have to admit I'm more libertarian leaning. I am also an entrepreneur. I actually have a financial background. And so, uh, we, you know, we talk a lot about uh, finance world and, and how to uh, accelerate our lives uh, financially. But as an entrepreneur, I love to talk to people who are doing new things. And uh, of course, I, I hint that with a little spirituality and religious just because of my background. And, and I believe in that kind of stuff. And Emily, I think that we make a great fit because what I understand is you recently made a switch from being a college professor to creating and starting a business of your own. What was that all about? Yeah. So actually last week was my last week as a tenured professor. So I, I did all the things in academia. I've really been in academia for probably about 20 years between going okay. to college, getting my degree, and then being a professor for 12 years. Um, and so what I realized, my passion is helping people become software developers and creating better software in the world. So that's always been my passion. And it took me forever, so, so long to learn how to code. Like it took me like six years. And even though I got all these degrees, I still had to teach myself in the end. So the system was broken. And I saw that. I was like, I want to fix this. So I tried to fix it from within the university structure until I realized I couldn't take it any further. Mm. And I was only... I was really overloading my students and myself with work because I was giving them two degrees. I was teaching them computer science and I was teaching them software development. It just wasn't fair. And then I realized, well, if I step outside of the university structure, I can do this better, faster, cheaper. Uh, and so that's what I'm doing now. Is I'm So now I train, instead of taking four years and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars, I train problem solvers to become six-figure developers uh, in six months. Well, that's great. You know, I have a lot of opinions when it comes to college. I, I have a bachelor's degree myself. It was in saving, uh, sales and marketing. Yep. And uh, to be honest, like computer languages and software development, that, that is not my forte at all. <laughs> I barely figured out how to create a podcast. And, you know, hopefully my listeners will appreciate the work I've done so far. But uh, so when you say computer science, that was a degree program at the college that you were, you were uh, a professor at? Yes, I was the program director at Drew University for their computer science program, which meant I designed the sequence of classes and I taught most of them. In fact, I started, uh, like as you mentioned in the introduction, I started a much bigger school called Montclair State University, which was, okay. it's a large public university with, you know, maybe 20 to 30,000 students in New Jersey. 
And so that was so big. We had hundreds of majors. I couldn't actually learn how to teach well mm. because I would only see them for a single semester. Where So I actually switched universities to figure out how to train people better because okay. at a smaller university where I was in charge of the whole curriculum, I taught them the same group of like 30 students again and again and again. And if they didn't have it, in, in this course, and I was going to give it to the next course and the next course and the next course. And, and I saw the whole loop. So if they were seniors graduating, I'm like, oh, they don't know this yet. <laughs> I put it into the intro course in the very beginning. And so that's how I gradually consolidated and took two and a half years of courses into six months because I kept learning how to work smarter. Like, oh, this, they can learn that at the same time. It's super simple. Like it's not, it's not overwhelming, but it's like, you could learn how, like imagine learning to write and it's all messy or someone could teach you how to write properly once the first time, right? So it's not really a huge investment. It's not a lot extra, but instead of having to go back and relearn how to meet in your handwriting, mm-hmm. you could just learn it once from the beginning. And so that's what I do. In and that was, that was not offered in the curriculum. You, you had a certain a protocol you had to follow with the curriculum in the school. Yeah, that's an awesome question. So again, I probably have some interesting views on academia, having been on the inside. Um, <laughs> academia is set up for certain topics and mastery of topics, and it's very exam centered. But I found that with the students that I, because I was graduating six-figure developers left and right, and what I found for the most successful students is it wasn't how many topics they knew. It was, did they have this mindset, this six-figure software developer mindset of solving problems? And I, I tried. I tried to onboard other faculty so that I could get other people in the program doing the same thing I was. Mm-hmm. And, and it was so challenging because the structures, they're set up for like, here, read this book, do this these exercises do this exam, none of the frameworks were set up. It's like, no, I'm teaching them a way of thinking, a way of problem solving. And we just keep doing that over and over and over again until they get it. It's really simple. It's four things. And then we just keep doing it. And that's not how the structure was set up. And I was, I, I really was, I found it very challenging to try and teach others how to do that um, because that's, it wasn't how the university was set up at all. <laughs> Mm, yeah, right, right. I get you. Yeah. So uh, among many problems I have with academia is, is, is kind of what you're saying is that when you think about solving problems, most people in my estimation, they, they know certain skills in college, but you know, you have to go to a whole other counselor just to figure out how to get a job. And then maybe you have a job somewhere and then you, you know, you, uh, most of the time, I think that you learn what you're doing on a job. Right. And, yeah. you know, uh, when you come out, that word entrepreneurism is not often taught in school. And so that's what I really like. And I, I, I kind of want to direct this towards some of the changing uh, changes in the world that we've seen, particularly over the last two years. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, we can talk a whole topic about COVID and all that other stuff. But really what I've noticed is that more than ever now, people have to be able to learn new skills to be able to adapt to a changing future. Yes. You know, and maybe the colleges are not offering those new skills that can help people adapt so quickly. Because like you said, a four year program takes four years. Well, since COVID has only been two years, like people are now either struggling with jobs that they either no longer have or outdated technologies, and they have to learn quickly to be able to adapt. Mm -hmm. Yes, adaptability. That is such a great point. And that's one of the areas where colleges and universities have kind of fallen behind. So I was teaching in a a field, software engineering, that was literally changing while I was teaching it. Mm. 
right? Like the latest technologies, the latest, the, the best practices in the industry, like it was evolving while I'm actively teaching it. Like think about history or even chemistry or math. These subjects have been around for thousands of years, some of them, hundreds of years. Sure. And so it's a really different subject. So it forced me to focus on that adaptability, that mindset. Like that's where I got to this from was because, okay, I know that I can't possibly prepare students for a 20 year career. If I only focus on like teaching them one programming language or one tech framework, I can't do it because what they're going to be using in their career hasn't even been invented yet. I need to teach them how to teach themselves and that process of problem solving so they can be confident and comfortable in the face of uncertainty and, and not get the deer in headlights. Like when they don't know the answer, because that it's the constant way we are encoding. You never know the answer. Like if you knew the answer, you wouldn't have the problem to solve. So um, it, it it was a huge mindset shift for me and how I deliver and how I um, offer the, the material that I work on. Okay. Well, great, great. I noticed in uh, you have a background. You were an intern at NASA. Yeah. How, how did how did that get? How'd you get that? Oh, so I applied to that in college. Um, okay. I was looking for summer internships, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, and it was really cool. I fell into it. In fact, I applied like a month late. So don't be afraid to apply for things. Uh, even <laughs> if the deadline is passed, you never know. Uh, but they really wanted to encourage women and minorities because computer science predominantly is a male dominated field. So I think that's partly why my application still was uh, accepted, even though it was late. Um, and I went and it was amazing. One thing you don't really learn, I don't know you, if this was your experience in college, but college interns typically don't get to do like real actual work, oh, okay. <laughs> right? Um, they, they just kind of get to hang out and have fun and maybe they make something that's useful to someone. <laughs> so uh, I really got to hang out at NASA Goddard. I worked with a mentor who was really into web accessibility. And what that means is helping make all the internet websites as accessible as possible to people, especially with special needs and disabilities. And it was like this huge deal when I was there. The government had just passed a law for compliance. So NASA being a government agency, right, like needed to be compliant. So that's what I focused my time on. So like, oh, this has value. I can, I can do something that people actually care about and can help others. And so I did some research on all the ways they could make their website compliant quickly and easily. Uh, and so that was the focus of my summer. But it was, it was amazing. And it taught me that I didn't really want to be in the stereotypical nine to five. I hadn't figured out I was an entrepreneur yet. Sure. Um, but it definitely taught me, I was like, Ooh, these, these got, people are just hanging out, having fun all day long. All right. Maybe a PhD is not so bad. This is, this looks pretty cool. I gotcha. Cool. Cool. You know, you mentioned that, uh, uh, NASA and in the computer software industry is predominantly male oriented, Yes. but uh, your story with NASA, it reminds me of a movie that just came out not too long ago. Are you familiar with the movie hidden figures? Yes. Yeah. That was a great movie. I, I forgot the woman's name, but she was like a computer genius and yes. you know, helped uh, get uh, Neil Armstrong up in this or one of them up in the space. And uh, it was a great movie about all the mathematicians and they were actually doing their job, uh, you know, calculating equations faster than a new IBM computer that came out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was I know. pretty inspiring. So. Yeah, it was awesome. And, and in fact, you know, historically the first programmers were women, Okay. It was considered secretarial work. And then they figured out that like, there's actually engineering problems in there. And then 
it just kind of ended up, I, I've done actually a lot of research personally on this because trying to figure out like, okay, am I wired differently? Like, why am I into this? And a lot of other women don't seem to be, but I think it's also a, a PR, like a marketing thing that mm. people just kind of get stuck in that mindset sure, because sure. there's so many passionate women. I know there's a whole conference for just women in, in technology, computer science called the Grace Hopper conference, which is, she's the woman that coined the term bug. Oh, um, okay. She literally found a moth in an old mainframe and, and really? so I'm like, yeah, the first bug. Um, but yeah, so there's a huge community. It's just sometimes, um, we can't see each other in the physical workplace. So it's really nice to have these online communities uh, and these conferences where we can connect. Great. Great. Now is computer science, something that you liked like your whole life, or is it, you just had an awakening one day and say, you know, I think I'm, that's where I'm suited to do. Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah. So I've, my mom was actually a project manager at um, Bell Labs, uh, which became Alcatel Lucent. She actually worked on the 3G systems. Like you remember 3G technology for cell phones? Like she rolled that out in the New York area. She was responsible for that. So she always made sure she was also affectionately known as the steamroller. So I had kind of an unconventional upbringing with gender roles for sure. Um, And so she always made sure we had technology at home. I was, I have a half brother who's much older than me. So I was basically an only child. So I had no competition. Uh, and so she always made sure even I think from the age I was like four, I had a computer at home, which in the early 80s was unusual, right? Yeah, like yeah. when I was when I was uh, a toddler, I, we had a computer at preschool and I remember playing on it before I knew the difference between upper and lowercase letters. <laughs> I knew if I hit two of these together, I'd get it to quit and I couldn't figure out which one. So I always had it around me. And I had an affinity for it. I wasn't like into coding. I was actually really into desktop publishing. I Mm. loved making things pretty. I made my own comic strips and newspaper columns and stuff like that. And then eventually when I went to college, I had a choice. I was like, okay, I can do computer science and learn how to program. Or I can be a music major because that that was I'm also very musical and I'm married to a music teacher. My brother's Mm. got a degree in composition. Like we're a very musical uh, family. But my brother's first job was as the manager of Sports Illustrated's network. So we got a music degree and then he ended up getting a tech job. So I was like, why don't I just skip the music degree, go straight for the tech degree and keep music as a hobby? So that was where I ended up. <laughs> well, that's interesting because music is known as the universal language yes. and, and so is mathematics. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's a polar opposite, right side, left side of the brain, because I'm a musician, too. And I'm de- yeah. generally more artistic, you know, obviously a podcaster and doing stuff like that. But the, like I said earlier, uh, technology and me are just really not congruent <laughs> with each other. So it takes a different so, part of the brain, I think. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think. Music and math, the way they're united, like they are kind of left versus right brain, but the way they unite is in the, what's called like the symbolic or abstract representation. So in math, you're kind of, you're taking these real world phenomena and you're making it symbolic. Like you're using variables like X and Y and Z and things like that. But then in music, you're looking at uh, music notation. This, if anyone's familiar with notes and staff on the clef, uh, the clef on the staff, that's also an abstract representation that you hear, mm. right? So you're interpreting something you see into something that you can perform or listen to. And so that kind of abstract relationship is what makes musicians and mathematicians excellent programmers. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's, it's, you got to learn multiple languages there, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. So. It's that, that, that symbolic thinking, that abstract, that ability to abstract. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. I remember when I went to college and I went to college after I was already a working adult, I decided I was going to switch what I was doing. I actually have a former background in heating and air conditioning. It was blue collar nice. worker for years. Then I said, you know what, I'm going to go to college and learn some different skills and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, back in the day, computer programming, you know, learning the different languages and forgive my ignorance here. You know, you had your C plus your C plus plus, and maybe Java was out there. And I'm just, I, I don't even know how to say those words, let alone be able to do anything. But now it seems like everything online is, is just plug and play. So it seems to be a lot. I mean, what am I missing here? So if you could break down like what coding language is uh, for a layman like myself. Absolutely. Oh, I love this question. Thank you so much. Because you're right. Language has constantly changed and there is a lot of plug and play. But behind that plug and play is someone that sat down and actually worked in the fundamentals, which have not changed for 50 years. And so what I do uh, is I help people understand what's called the seven basics of coding. Mm -hmm. And so this it's like it's like, would you start learning to read without knowing the alphabet? Probably not. Exactly. So (laughs) there's like this hidden alphabet that people don't really talk about or see in problem solving and coding. And if you have these seven basics, you have that alphabet. And it's kind of like, you know, you'd mentioned, you know, HVAC and cooling and heating. I love this toolbox metaphor. Like once you know how to use a screwdriver, it's pretty simple to use a screwdriver, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can take a screw and you screw it in. The really important knowledge is how to use that screwdriver to build something, Mm. right? And once you know how to use one screwdriver, it's pretty easy to pick up another one, right? Okay. Right. So that's the same idea is that when you have these seven basics, the hard part is understanding how to use them to solve problems. Once you've mastered that, it doesn't really matter which language you're in. They all have this. They all have these seven basics in them. They look a little different. It's like you have a screwdriver that's got a blue handle or a yellow handle or it's long or it's Phillips or it's short. You know, like you have these different screwdrivers. And I get that programming languages are a little bit more complicated than a screwdriver. But the, the, the analogy is the same that. Once you master these seven basics and you learn how to actually problem solve and break a high level problem into these seven basics, it doesn't matter what new language comes out. Mm. They all support this stuff. So if that makes sense. Okay. I have a mentor that I listen to who's been telling everyone to learn new skills. You know, like I mentioned earlier, especially with the changing technology and economy. And he always says, you know, if I have my druthers, I teach my children how to code because that's going to be the, you know, the language of the future. I'm like, well, okay, possibly, (laughs) maybe not for me, but, uh, uh, you know, a a lot of people uh, are finding use, especially in a digital world we're living in. Like you said, Mm -hmm. you know, there's that plug and play, but then there's people behind that who have to create that, uh, that module. So somebody like me can just simply use it. Exactly, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this, because I felt like the system was broken. I was like, how can I go for a four year degree and have a four oh my final two years and not know how to code when I got out and go to grad school and end up teaching myself, right? Like the system was broken. I like I have a math background. I'm really good at math and music. Everything society says should make a good programmer, all those ingredients I had, and I still couldn't do it. So that's and I realized it's like, well, gosh, if I can't do it, how many people are out there that want to do it that can't figure it out either? And so that's where I really I really went on a mission. And it took me six years to teach myself how to program. And then it took me six more years to learn how to teach it to anybody. And so I was teaching at Drew. It was a liberal arts. I taught music majors, history majors, English majors, science Mm -hmm. majors, math majors. I taught them all. They all learned those seven basics and how to use them for problem solving. What you mentioned there is interesting because, you know, when you learn any kind of skill, it's one thing to take the time to learn that skill and to be proficient in it, maybe be a master at it. But Mm -hmm. then teaching itself is a completely different thing. 
but you had already had experience teaching. So you knew that process as a, as a professor, but now you just need to understand the language of coding so you can actually teach it itself. Well, why, yeah. why was there, why was there a difference there? I mean, if you already know the art of teaching, maybe, maybe I'm lost in what you're saying here. You said no it took years to learn how to teach it. How, did, how does that work? Yeah. Well, just think of it. Have you ever tried to learn how to do something from an expert and not understood what they were saying? Yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes the more you know about it does not necessarily make you a better educator of it. Right. And so I, and actually in academia, a PhD only says you can do independent research. It says nothing about your ability to communicate or teach that. Oh, I, okay. I see. Generation. Sure. Right. K through 12 teachers go through a rigorous process of certification. Like they know so much about how to teach anyone who comes in their class because in their world, everyone must pass the basics. In mm. college, you can just say, this major is not for you. The cop out. <laughs> that wasn't okay with me. I was like, no, 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 you're in my class. You're going to learn, <laughs> right? Yeah, like we're going to figure this out together. And so what I had to do, which was optional, but because I, I was really passionate about this, I was like, I chipped my shoulder. I'm going to teach everybody to code. Um, I worked with a retired high school chemistry teacher who worked at okay. a very exclusive private uh, high school in New York City. She was an alum and she came back to, to, help, uh, to help support the educational mission of my university. And she actually sat in on my classroom and taught me moment by moment what I could do better to help reach my students more effectively. That gotcha. is not required of any PhD in the world, Interesting. right? It was just because I wanted to do it. And I, I found a path and I found someone who knew how to help me reach my students more effectively. And so that process to, uh, of finding that person and continuing to invest in my materials over and over again until it was like clockwork, they were passing and they were succeeding, took me six years. Okay. Okay. So you were able to take a complex language, complex situation and, and, and break it down. Now your claim is that you can turn somebody within six months who knows nothing into be mm -hmm. a, a six figure earner in, in that world. You have yeah. a, you have a website uh, where you are a coach or a consultant to call the joy of coding, correct? Yes, exactly. So the, the place, if anyone's interested, the place I usually direct people to is sixfiguresoftwaredeveloper.com. Okay. Just because that's, that's, that's really the focus. That's the end result. And in fact, a couple of the students that have come in and gotten jobs, they got jobs in three months, actually. So you can get jobs in three months. They're usually not that six-figure job though, right? So that's where the six months comes into play. But the fundamentals and the basics are so employable within three months of training, you can be getting at least, you know, like in the 50 to 60 to 70 K range for sure. And that's, so some of my students were like, that's all I need. See you later. <laughs> and they're off and running. And then some people want that whole six figure process where they really want to be in that trajectory. Cause to be honest in, in programming software developers, the starting salary is anywhere from 40 K to 150 K to oh, wow. begin entry okay. level is that big. And then you get in there a couple of years, I've heard of salaries as high as 900K. Like it's huge, the growth. You get in there for a couple of years, you're making two, 300K if you keep investing in yourself and, you're, and you keep learning. Uh, it's really, it's a really lucrative field. Well, see, and that's, that's a great mindset shift from, you know, going and borrowing money essentially to go to college, getting stuck with college, you know, loans and whatnot, mm -hmm. and, and not even having the skills to be able to make a transition. You're already bringing somebody who, whatever the cost of your, of your course is over a six month period of time, it has to be less than college. Absolutely. For <laughs> sure. It's less than, yeah, it's way less. <laughs> do people already start like working once they start taking class or do you recommend them take the entire class before they start looking for jobs? 
Oh, that's a really great question. So actually I have a little bit of a secret weapon because I'm also running a software company. Okay. So this means that while you're learning, I can guarantee internships for students. And once students are through the training and internship phase, they can actually start to get paid for the work they're doing part-time for my software company while they're looking for jobs. And we have a whole career services piece and a coach that helps them strategize on how to earn top dollar and negotiate and nail that interview and all that stuff. So while you're applying for jobs, I also have this opportunity where you can continue to put that entry level experience on your resume. So my students don't enter the job market cold anymore, right? They have that six figure developer experience. And so it just helps them really uh, stand out from the crowd. They're, they're not, ent- it's not entry level anymore. It's not like a college or boot camp where it's like you have to go hunt and find your own job. You already have that experience, which everyone is looking for. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I want to shift more towards uh, entrepreneurism because yeah. I think that's what uh, you said that you were attracted to what I'm talking about the most, yeah. this idea of sovereignty, right? And we, we can talk about mm-hmm. what sovereignty really means, but I think that in the 21st century, it's very apparent that uh, we need to be able to control the source of our income more than anything, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, you know, you could have a skill set and you could, you could work for a, a reputable company, but how many people are still on that chopping block, still on that risk of being on a chopping block for whatever reason? So now I think, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but your, your course probably not only tells you the skill about being a programmer, but how to be an entrepreneur as well. Yeah. So actually on the business side, I definitely support the entrepreneurship learning for, okay. because I work with uh, startups, people who want a software startup yeah. uh, and a prototype for that. So I do the intern, the entrepreneurship there. Most of the students I get that are looking to become programmers, they're looking for that steady salary, that, that okay. really high steady salary, which, which I had as well. But for me being an educator, there was no movement on the salary. It was like, wherever you hit, that was it. Sure. sure. Um, and so, but I definitely do work and I help support um, entrepreneurs who want to, who need who are looking for software to start up. I totally work with them on that. Okay. That's great. Well, cause in my, in my estimation, having that ability to, to work for yourself, having multiple mm-hmm. sources of income, whether you, I had, I've had a job before I've had many jobs before. Right. But like I said, for any number of reasons, the job and me just didn't mix. So I'm an entrepreneur myself. You know, I want to be able to continue to learn new skills, continue to adapt to changes in technology and never have to worry about the government shutting me down or the company mm-hmm. closing or, you know, for whatever reason, you just because you're out of work. And I think that causes a lot of stress in today's world. Absolutely. Absolutely. For me specifically, it was really funny when I got my when I got my second professor job, I joked on the interview that I was a risk averse entrepreneur. I thought I was joking. What I didn't realize is it was literally the truth. I've been a risk-averse entrepreneur hiding in the safe, the relative safety of academia. But eventually, because I have four children, uh, work-life balance is huge. Um, being able to set my own schedule and having room to grow in terms of my finances. So I had a great position. I had tenure. They can't fire me unless they do something really horrible. Um, so that was great security all, all the time for the rest of my life, except they hadn't given raises for 15 years ah. and it, and historically hadn't differentiated salaries based on field. Now they did for me, I got a little bit more than some of my peers and that was very generous of them, but relative not to industry, forget it, academia can't compete with industry, but like relative to other computer science, like um, pr- departments all over the country that were similar in size and scale, I was off the charts below fifth percentile in terms mm-hmm. of income. It was just like, and there was no movement as like 
I have to change something. Like I have to do something different. And so that's eventually it pushed me. I mean, what, now that I'm in entrepreneurship, I realize I, I, I I could have been here the whole time. Like this is where my skill set is. Like I jam with other entrepreneurs and I actually started an innovation program at my university. Um, and to, and then I realized I couldn't take it any further without doing it myself. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of been right there simmering below the surface. I, I just didn't see it. It took me a little bit to see it. <laughs> well, great. Well, let's talk about that journey because you, you mentioned work-life balance. Now, you said you're yes. a mother of four and you're yes. married, so you have a family. And I know that that can be an overwhelming uh, experience. I mean, I, I have a daughter <laughs> myself, but the, and then you were a tenured professor. And then on top mm-hmm. of that, you also started a business. So yes. tell me how you, how you balance all that stuff and to be able to, to get to the point where you're at. Very carefully. No, that's, that's a great question. So I think part of my success is I have a really supportive partner. So my husband is a music teacher. He teaches okay. uh, instrumental music, band and orchestra out of fourth, fifth and sixth graders. So he was, career was not his main focus because I mean, teachers, no matter where you are, whatever state they're not, it's not the highest earning potential there. So he liked right. his job. Uh, he likes the security of it and he's very supportive. So like he taught me how to be a good parent for our children. So like we kind of, and I'm the primary wage earner. So like we have a little bit of an interesting relationship there. That's not necessarily typical, but having a supportive partner, I think is really, really key. Um, and then we finding ways to make that work. So this year was a little bit challenging because I was trying to launch my business and finish up my day job, right? So the day job provided that security as I'm trying to figure out how to keep this business flowing um, to to replace it. And so um, there were a few weeks where I felt a little bit overburdened, (laughs) like maybe I had kind of tweaked things and got the balance off. But I found like, as soon as I was finished, just literally was just a couple of weeks ago, it's been amazing. I have so much more space for my business to invest in it and keep it going. So now the growth is really going to take off. It, It basically being in my day job while secure made it really hard to grow my business too, because I just didn't have the bandwidth uh, to get that going. Yeah, I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with that. And I always recommend people who are going to be an entrepreneur not to quit your day job, right? right. To get to a point where you have, you're, you're concerned about that security, especially if you're of a family that you have to provide for. Yes. That security is, is definitely important. But I think where a lot of entrepreneurs kind of miss the mark is they're, 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 they're holding on to that job security when if they actually take that risk and that step into the unknown, they could actually excel, like you said, but mm-hmm. uh, you know that 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 security holds a lot of people back, and it's, it's kind of a shame if you ask me. Yeah. So what I what we had to do to help with that security is we kind of, I saved up about three months of our minimum income, not not my full salary, but like okay, we need to keep the lights on, right? Right. Like, uh, and so we saved that up for three months so that I could kind of walk away, and I have a baby on the way, so not only am I walking away from my day job and all my security. Uh, income security, I'm starting my business and I'm going to have to step away slightly when the baby arrives later this fall. So uh, it, it, that's been a really interesting challenge. But I, I think proving, getting yourself to the point where you can kind of start to count on things a little bit, even if it's a low amount, like I think that can give people confidence. For me, what I did is I started, I was fortunate to be able to step partially away from my day job. So normally uh, in my university, we teach three courses a semester. What I did is this spring, because I knew I was winding things down, I had told them I was going to leave. They were trying to hire my replacement. Um, And so I said, I will only teach two classes, which was a a third pay cut. It was a big pay cut um, because they had already paid me full freight in the fall semester. (laughs) So the pay cut was really big. 
but I found, you know, a regular client that's paying me monthly. And so it just kind of worked. Like I made the decision and then it, it came, right. Okay. It just kind of like happened. And so I was able to make that work. And so I started baby stepping into living off of my business a little bit this spring so that that would give me more confidence in totally walking away from it. Sure. Sure. Now is your class that you, the joy of coding, that's a subscription model. No. So that was a software client. So I offered them a monthly payment plan. Oh, I, okay. we, I do offer subscription models for it. Um, it's not really a, it's mostly a monthly payment plan rather than a subscription, like because the, the program itself, I want to get you to the six figures, uh, whoever, whoever I work with. And I guarantee, actually, I will continue working with each of my students until they get that six figure job. Okay. Um, and so it's a, it's really, it's a long-term commitment and it's not going to take that long, but, but if it does life happens, I'm here for the long haul. Um, and so I, I offer a really cool discount if you're, if you're ready to take action and move quickly. Okay. Um, so there's a couple, I have a lot of different, um, models there. Well, yeah. I was asking because, you know, I've been learning a lot about, uh, and I'm going to eventually just trying to figure out how I can incorporate my experience in financial services into a yeah. subscription. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, what I've been learning is that if you, if you create a class, an online course, like you, you do all the work to put the class together, but then you can offer multiple times. So it actually frees yes. up some time where you're not mm -hmm. sitting there, you know, live in a presentation, but it sounds like yes. you actually do take the time and you have, you, you're actually there live for your classes. Is that correct? Yeah. So the way it works is hybrid. So I, I do have a lot of experience with different types of delivery mechanisms, just in my experience as being a professor. So the way it works is the materials themselves, the trainings are online, work at your own pace. Okay. What I do is I offer open office hours where you can ask questions. Um, we have a couple set times during the week. So I am working with the students one-on-one, -on -one, answering whatever questions they have, fast tracking them over whatever hurdle they're on. I, you know, I can't guarantee you won't ever encounter a hurdle like that they're there, like they're going to be there. Yeah, uh, and so really it's about fast tracking it. And I also support students. We have our own private messaging system. It's on discord. So like people have access to the whole community all the time, 24 seven. And so we're really focused on helping people move through quickly and moving over wherever they get stuck. So you don't sit there being stuck for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's just like, we move, we move on. Well, that's, that's great. So you, you get, you get the best of both worlds there. So uh, exactly. you, know, you can schedule your time when you want to around, uh, around the family time and, you know, with a new baby anyway, congratulations, by the way. I do. Thank you. We're very excited. <laughs> so that's always a wonderful thing, but yeah. So, I mean, for, like I said, for, for entrepreneurs who, who can craft their lifestyle based on, you know, mm -hmm. what they want to do. Most people, I think they have a job. You mentioned earlier, nine to five, right? And then yeah. they, they kind of fit their life around that nine to five where the entrepreneur mindset, you can actually say, okay, this is my life. This is what I want to do. This is what I am passionate. And now you fit your schedule around the life that you have created instead of the other way around. Yes. I love that. And that was one of the things that attracted me to it so much because I am a mom and I want to be present. I want to be you know, going to events or the Halloween parade or like whatever it is that's happening. I want to be able to, to do that. And my, I admit being in, you know, in academia as a professor did offer me a lot of that flexibility, which is why I was able to stay there so long. Mm -hmm. um, it just didn't offer any raises. <laughs> so that was, that was the problem. Um, and so, and really it, it cut our lifestyle short because my husband's a teacher, my whole family, we have the summer off, but mm. the university schedule, we went back before Labor Day. So we had, we, we don't go, take vacations very often because we're all in school. Yeah. And then the summer, that's when we can be together. Instead of having eight weeks together, we had like six because I had to go back. 
Okay. Right. And so it was okay. just like this inconvenient. Eventually it just got to be, I know some people might think, okay, well, you have job security. What, what does it matter? But eventually it was like this rub. It was just like, oh, this is too annoying. Let me just do this. <laughs> sure, like, let sure. me just figure out how to do this because now I might, I might work all summer long, but I get to choose my own hours and it's virtual and it, it's, it fits my lifestyle. Like, just like you're saying, which I think is just amazing. And then eventually I will create a a course like you're talking about to help release it. I just haven't, I haven't gotten it out there yet. I gotcha. I gotcha. So what, what do you think about uh, homeschool homeschooling in today's world? Because oh, obviously we, 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 we had, we talked a little bit about your experience in academia and I'm not going to, if you've listened to a couple of my shows, I, sometimes I get off on tangents where I just, I hate school, even though I have a degree, but you know, I, I don't have the privilege of homeschooling my daughter right now, but I really wish I would have, uh, but just because of technology and changes and who knows what the heck we're being taught in school anyway, you know, what do you think about homeschooling? Oh, that's such a great question. And it's interesting because I'm, I'm in a family of educators. I'm married yeah. into a family of educators. So I actually thought fairly deeply about this question because I'm actually open to homeschooling. And I was okay. really, I mean, co- I'm sorry for why COVID had to happen and the lives that were lost and the challenges that it presented. But for me personally and my family, it was actually really cool because we got to spend so much time together that we'll sure, probably sure. never have again. And I got to like kind of play at homeschooling and see what that was like. And I mean, I, we, my husband and I had discussed this, you know, he, he being an actual public school teacher was actually adamantly opposed to homeschooling. Sure, okay. I was open to it. And I, because you're right, like we, as parents, we can choose how we want our children to be educated. Right now we're really fortunate. Uh, we're in a, a, a suburb of New York city that has an amazing education system. So I feel like the education my children are getting in the public school is actually very aligned with what I would want them to learn. So sure. that at least is not a concern, right? Like if that was okay. a concern, that's a separate story. Uh, but really to me, the purpose of public education, if you don't agree with what they're learning, the one benefit you get is that socialization and having them connect with their peers. You can do almost everything else elsewhere. It just requires more work. Like having an, uh, the group things are w- really where you, you have to do a little extra diligence, I think, as a homeschool parent, because the music ensembles, performing together as a group, playing sure. on teams, science experiments, working with some chemicals that you might not get to work with or some materials, but there's a lot of great stuff online. So I really think it's about if you're working with your kids to make a community, you know, I really think that's the most important thing for that. Um, But really you can, you can choose. So if your school system is teaching them to be critical thinkers, to me, two thumbs up. If that's, if you don't feel like that's happening, then maybe, maybe homeschool would be, or a private school would be a better option. Well, you know, you brought up the, the number one objection that people have against homeschooling. And, you know, regardless of, you know, how it sounds politically, you know, the socialization of children, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say that because obviously what we've seen over the last two years is everything is Zoom technology, right? Obviously, you mm-hmm. and I have never met in person. And it's one thing to be able to have a conversation on a video screen, you know, somewhere. But when you actually interact physically with another person, it's a completely different experience. And I think that my my concern about everything going digital nowadays is that you know people are not learning how to connect in a physical space anymore. And you know yeah. maybe maybe there's a place for that in school, but you know social activities, music, uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, whether they're in some kind of athletic program or religious program, I think all of that is is definitely something that you can replace that, or maybe exactly. not, maybe that's not the right word, but maybe you can fulfill that, that even if they exactly. don't have it regular public schooling. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. I think there's ways of doing it. 
I, I do think the social aspect becomes a challenge. We, we did have, uh, I had a, a, a niece that was homeschooled and she was not the most social person. What was that because she was homeschooled or she would have been that way anyways? We don't really know, right? right. I, I wouldn't call my oldest the most social person either. And <laughs> okay. she's in public school, right? So, I mean, you know, you, you don't really know. I think really it's about finding the best path for them. And if the school environment is not supporting their serving their higher purpose, then it makes absolute sense to homeschool. And for example, with my kids, I'm open to it. You know, if, if when my daughter becomes of age, she's talked about potentially wanting to homeschool. It's not really feasible because both me, my husband and I work full time. Like it's really not feasible for her to be home. We, we sure. can't really support it. But when she's old enough to stay home alone, she's 10 now. If okay. she really didn't want to go to school, I would be open to her. She's a very good student. Like I'd be open to her doing that if she was overwhelmed by the social structure of school. But at the same time, if she goes, she'll be learning different lessons, right? Yeah. So it really... We're, I'm fortunate I'm in a house of intellectuals, so I don't worry about my kids' development that way. It's really about, are they learning to be in the world and support others and to use their skills for good? And they can learn that homeschooled or they can learn it in school. Okay. Now you mentioned your daughter was 10, but your, your oldest is, uh, how old is your oldest? So she is my oldest. She's okay. 10. So she's 10. Yeah. So I, I was asking that because, uh, you know, I, I have an 11 year old daughter and, yeah. you know, she's sort of interested in what I'm doing professionally, but you know, she's still a child. And so yeah. like, she's got a long time to go to, to, you know, to figure out what she wants to do. I, I just wondering, are, are your children musicians? Are they, are they computer people? Are they, you know, are they interested in what you're doing professionally? Oh, that's so cool. Actually, I just had my son just filled in like a Mother's Day thing okay. because uh, that, that happened recently. He's like, yeah, my mom is good at work. My mom is good at coding. <laughs> like, so they they definitely pay attention to it. Of course, some of what I read there is like, hmm, maybe I got my balance off. I need to be, I need to, <laughs> to figure out where that home time is a little bit. But because um, I, I love my kids are my favorite people. I love spending time with them. I just sometimes I want to do more than I physically have time for. So I figuring out those priorities. But what impresses me so much is how much I can learn from them as okay. well. So my sure. oldest is 10 and I know she's going to be an entrepreneur because here I am trying to work and, and, and figure out how to run this business. I started last August, you know, actually with, with um, seriously investing in it and having open doors and having students coming through. And one day she saw something at the toy store, big stuffy. She's like, you know, I want that stuffy. So that was Friday. So Saturday, she's like, I'm going to get that stuffy. I don't have $40, but I'm going to get that stuffy. She went in the kitchen, baked a batch of cookies, and within an hour had sold them out to all the neighbors and went to the toy store and got the $40 stuffy. Oh. And I was just like, oh my goodness. Like, and That's here fantastic. I am. I've been working for so long. I was just, she blew me away with just how simple and easy it was. And her, her younger siblings helped her out. She didn't even have to pay them. They just wanted a cookie. So like she didn't even have to give up any profits to get to pay her employees like in the process. Yeah, that's that's amazing. perfect. So it's amazing yeah. what your children, you know, emulate from yeah, you and just by exactly. watching you, you know. Right. It is. So, so I, I can't wait to see. I'm actually going to a conference, a workshop this summer. And I'm trying to um, I'm trying to see if I can bring her to it because I just think she would get so much out of it uh, for future. Cool. Cool. Well, awesome. You know, so like on this, on this show, I, we always talk about mindset. I think this is the number one thing that determines someone's success is what their mindset is. And so obviously you shared your story about you, you've been thinking about doing this as an entrepreneur for, you know, for a while. Has there been any um, increase or like demand over the last couple of years because of COVID and everything else? Has, has there been like, you know, an acceleration of your thought? I got to get this done now because, you know, the world's changing. Yeah. So this is a really great point. So actually 
before COVID, the semester before COVID, I was actually, I got a sabbatical from the first time, which is where as a professor, you get paid, but you don't actually have to go to work. You're supposed to be doing research. But I was so research active before I really didn't need to do anything. It was lip service. Like I didn't really need to take any action or very little. And I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out this whole work-life balance thing. I'm going to figure this out. Nope. It was like, I couldn't figure it out. And to the point where I was like, I almost, I, I didn't want to return. I was like, I can't figure this out. I want to leave and be my own boss and figure this out. I was yeah. in a, I was in a day trading course. I had started, like I made like 3K in a week or I made like a big portion of my salary in a week. I was at once, of course, I didn't repeat it. I just did it once. I was like, all right, I'm out now. Okay. I, it was a little premature <laughs> and it was, the timing wasn't awesome, but that really got me on fire because I realized I did not want to be living this life anymore where I was struck constantly struggling with work-life balance. I mean, it's still something I work on, but I just didn't want all these external factors in the way. Like I wanted to figure out what worked for me and my family and just and do that. Sure. And so that's really what lit the fire under me. And then COVID happened. <laughs> it was literally, I went back to work for a month and then COVID happened. And it was, that's actually, we'd mentioned, you know, I recently converted to Catholicism. That's where I came to it because I was literally so distressed over work-life balance and trying to be the employee I wanted to be and the mom I wanted to be and not finding a path that I was so, I was really so down and depressed when I went to church. I've been to church a lot. My husband is, was born and raised Catholic. Okay. I was married in the Catholic church, but I, I like this during this really rough time, I walked into the church and I felt this huge sense of peace descend on me. Mm. I was like, okay, I'm listening. <laughs> I'm paying attention because it was so it was so good. So we went for Christmas as a family. And then I was like, well, let me try this again. And I went back, I think it was Epiphany, you know, in early January and it happened again. I was like, okay, I'm paying attention. And then gradually like my church community had like an alpha course where you could learn about the faith without actually being a parishioner. Mm. I did that. So, cause I did, for me, it was very intentional. Like I didn't want to just become Catholic. Like I, I did it because it was really helping me and becoming a part of a community where I felt accepted and supported. And it was just, people were nice. I don't know. It was just really, it was like, it was just a really great fit for me. And so that led me on my path to eventually also um, be convert, ultimately converting to become Catholic. And and we baptized all four of our kids at the same time before I was even baptized. It was really fun. So that part of that, that's what lit the fire. And so what helped me have the faith to walk away from my day job was converting to Catholicism, Mm. right? So like I needed both. I needed the the restless feet that I wasn't happy with the status quo. I needed to make a change. I didn't know what it was. I thought it might be entrepreneurship, but then I needed the strength to walk away because I tried to walk away before I converted and I stayed in it for the ah. security because I couldn't, I could, and I was miserable. I like, sure. I was so close to leaving. I would started talking to the Dean and the provost and, t- and giving them my resignation. I, like, I was so close to leaving before COVID. And I couldn't, I couldn't take the last step. I couldn't take that final step to walk away from the security. So I actually needed the faith and that journey to transformation to enable me to step into who I am as an entrepreneur. Gotcha. Cool. You know, hold on, my phone's on. Huh? <laughs> you know, it's, 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 I'm glad that you mentioned that uh, about finding faith because from what I've witnessed and, I, and I've been, I've been a Christian most of my life. And uh, you know, COVID just helped me find my faith a little bit more. But I'm finding so many people that I talk to nowadays have found that, you know, world changes, catastrophe, crisis, no matter which way you think about that whole thing, uh, many people have found something more because of COVID mm-hmm. on a spiritual yeah. plane. And, you know, and you mentioned that, that, you know, that you found community 
You found mm-hmm. purpose. You found some kind of connection to help maximize your faith. And I think that's all, again, part of the element of, uh, of finding that, that, that freedom within ourselves, that, that decision to take risks, to, to get the rewards back. And so, you know, I, I want to congratulate you for that personal decision in your life, because I think that's an important element that many p- people are missing. Yeah, absolutely. Because how can you walk away from that security, right? If, if you believe that what we see in the world is the ultimate answer, that that's a huge step to take. I, I don't know how people do it, but having that faith and that belief that like, it's really about what the internal soul and you know, we have, there's life beyond this, like all of those things really, really help not, and also help me not judge myself and, and get over um, attached to any mistakes I make. Cause as we learn and we do new things as entrepreneurs, we're always doing new things. We're problem solvers, you know, not beating myself up for mistakes that I make. It's part of the learning process. So like having that faith in an immortal soul really helps like smooth out some of these little bumps that I was just getting hung up on and were keeping me from really stepping into, you know, what I can become. Sure. Awesome. Well, Emily, you know, it's been almost an hour here and, you know, I didn't, we, we didn't get into the, uh, the, the deep dive of, of, you know, coding and everything like that. Again, it's, it's kind of like a language I just don't understand. So mm-hmm. when I need to do that, uh, I'm going to recommend people to come to, to you. And so if you want to just, uh, you just kind of do a brief overview real quick about, you know, about what the joy of coding uh, program is, and then, you know, you can give whatever plugs and, you know, we'll get going. So. Awesome. Thank you so much. And so if anyone is interested in learning more, I, you know, I'm so passionate about this. I want everyone who wants to, to be able to have a seat at the table to create the software uh, that they dream about. Um, and so I work on those seven basics we talked about. We deepen those fundamentals and problem solving and prepare for tech interviews. And then I have a guaranteed internship program where every student gets to actually work on a real professional client project for a paying client. You know, and we follow this software industry's best practices um, and that's on your way to learning. And that can all happen in six months for about 10 hours a week. So if you think that's something that's a good fit for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. The best place to reach me is sixfiguresoftwaredeveloper.com. I also have a Facebook uh, group called Joy of Coding, which you're welcome. Uh, and I have links for all those. If, if you'd like, we can share them as well, um, where I, I have interviews with six-figure developers uh, at least every month, sometimes more than every month, where you can hear from like senior developers, what life is like as a developer, what they need to do to, to get that job and just really building a community around becoming six-figure developers. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we had, we uh, had a conversation with Dr. Emily Hill. We talked about uh, academia and the need for college and, and transitioning from that to, to becoming an entrepreneur and work-life balance and having a family of, uh, of six, right? Five children yeah. or seven now, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and having faith in your life and all that stuff is very important. So I have one last question for you, Emily. I know I gave you the prep sheet. So are you Invictus? Uh, <laughs> I, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> I assume so. Uh, I'm not, shoot, I didn't see that on the prep sheet. Oh, my goodness. I, I read the prep sheet. Sorry about that. Your response is hilarious because okay. you know I always I, I like to bring that in people. Invictus is actually a Greek word. It means unconquerable. Okay. Yes. Then yes, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Oh my goodness. I missed for me it, it means adapting to changes. It means that no no oppressive system will keep you down. That you have the mindset and the will and the determination to to go after that next thing you want, regardless of whatever life hands you. So. Oh, I love that. I love that definition. Thank you for clarifying. I think for me, I'm on the journey to Invictus. Awesome. Like I, I flirt with it. I can, I can feel it sometimes. Sometimes I'm channeling that sometimes <laughs> I'm, I'm still, I'm still there. 
So it's life's a journey, right? Well, there you go. Well, there you go. For all those listeners, you know, you can check out uh, Dr. Hill and uh, and everything she said, and uh, hopefully we can all become Invictus together. So I want to thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Have a great day.